Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series uh, with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conference series, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited to bring you the next edition in our digital asset series of SALT Talks with Michael Novogratz and Ari Paul. Uh, first, I'll introduce uh, Mr. Novogratz. Michael Novogratz is the founder and CEO of Galaxy Digital. He was formerly a partner and president of Fortress Investment Group. Uh, prior to Fortress, Mr. Novogratz spent 11 years at Goldman Sachs, where he was elected partner in 1998. Uh, Michael served on the New York Federal Reserve's Investment Advisory Committee on Financial Markets from 2012 to 2015. And he serves as the chairman of the Bail Project and has made criminal justice reform a focus of his family's foundation. He also serves as the chairman of Hudson River Park Friends and sits on the boards of NYU Langone Medical Center, the Princeton Varsity Club, Jazz Foundation of America, and Artists for Peace and Justice. And just some editorialization from my perspective, uh, Mike was one of the first major players from what I guess you could term the legacy uh, alternative investment universe to really dive headfirst uh, into Bitcoin and digital assets. We have to give him a lot of credit for that. Uh, Ari Paul co-founded Block Tower Capital in 2017 and began his career in the financial services industry in 2006. Between 2006 and 2010, Ari was a trader and derivatives market maker at Susquehanna International Group, and then a proprietary derivatives trader until 2013. Between 2013 and 2017, Ari served as the portfolio manager and risk manager for the University of Chicago's $8 billion endowment, where he managed a tail hedging strategy via long volatility investments. In his role, Ari also worked with the chief risk officer of, uh, in risk management and analytics and performed research on the characteristics of endowment investments and asset classes, including researching cryptocurrency. Uh, Ari began his investment in cryptocurrency in 2014, and he's previously invested in exchange traded crypto assets, initial coin offerings, initial coin offerings, and other parts of the crypto and blockchain ecosystem. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm that recently invested several hundred million dollars into Bitcoin and launched a Bitcoin uh, fund to allow other clients uh, to access the market uh, in a pure play format. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. And uh, also trade through Galaxy, right? Yep. Is, that hey. you? is that you, Galaxy Digital, Michael Novogratz? That sure is me. So, so thank you. So I'm going to start with you, Novo, because uh, Ari and I are just getting to know each other, but you and I are long lost friends, probably related somewhere, just given the level of flamboyance and fashion and all the other stuff that goes on. So you are a legendary macro trader. Uh, you're a brilliant investor. Uh, you had a great celebra celebrated career at Goldman, and then you went on to Fortress. But you had this aha eureka moment on Bitcoin. When did that happen, Michael? Why did it happen? And when did the light go on for you where you became where you are in Bitcoin? Well, listen, I started investing in Bitcoin, call it 2013. And originally it was a speculative move. Someone called me up and said, hey, what do you think about this? I didn't think anything about it. So I looked into it and realized it was a perfect asset 
for speculative frenzy, right? To for people to get excited about it. It was a new technology back then. Um, it played right into the heart of people being frustrated with the government, right? We had the great financial crisis in 08, the European financial crisis in 2012. Uh, we were in the middle of QE and people didn't trust banks. They didn't trust central banks. They didn't trust authority. And that was this kind of ethos of the Bitcoin community of Satoshi's first you know, white paper. Uh, let's do a, a currency at that point, you know, a store of value now that lives beyond the borders of government. And I was like, you know, there are enough libertarians, you know, hyperinflation people, uh, people that want to live off the grid, the cypherpunks, all of these many communities were buying into this and the Chinese were buying. So I thought it's pretty easy thing. It's going to go higher. And so I bought a bunch when it was about 100, uh, but really not with a religious zeal, thinking this would be a great speculative trade. And quite frankly, wanted to sell it at 1,000. Uh, my partner, you know, one of my partners at the time really didn't want to uh, and uh, convinced me not to uh, uh, through coercion. And, uh, you know, went back down to 200. I thought, oh, I told you so. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of happy now at 36,000, 37,000 that I, I didn't sell. Uh, partly because when you sell your whole position, it's hard to ever buy the same amount back. Um, I really got my religion, though, when I walked into, you know, the offices of a company called Consensus in Brooklyn, in Bushwick, Brooklyn, run by a guy named Joe Lubin, who, who happened to be a college roommate. And this was right after I left Fortress, um, late 2015, and they were just launching Ethereum. Right? Ethereum, the token was trading by 97 cents. Maybe it had been in existence for four or five months. Um, but he was starting this company consensus and I walked in and I saw this group of people, young and old, plotting out this financial revolution, plotting out uh, not just the financial revolution, a kind of worldwide revolution. And I realized that there was a religion to this stuff, that people were in it, not just for the money, they were in it for change, to rebuild the financial system in a more egalitarian way, in a more transparent way, in a fairer way. Uh, what we're seeing now called DeFi, they were talking about back then. They were also talking about it for the music industry, for publishing, for almost every industry you can think about. And that got me really thinking that there's a passion behind these communities that doesn't exist in very normal, I mean, maybe it exists in the Tesla maniacs, but in general, you know, you don't see people with Ford tattoos. Uh, wow, there are a lot of Bitcoin tattoos, uh, right? These are, they're purpose-driven movements. Uh, and that got me really excited because it lined up with my social, uh, you know, my social, social consciousness, the way I saw the world. And I was like, this is cool to be part of a revolution that wants to, you know, kind of do good. Um, and so that's when I really plunged in. I bought a ton of Ethereum that went up that year. 2017 became this amazing speculative bubble. Um, and at that point, I was like, OK, we're going to start a company. And we we started Galaxy really in early 2018, right as the the, the bubble was popping. And I knew it was a bubble. I talked about it being a bubble. I sold a lot of stuff. Uh, but I decided to start a company anyway because I figured, you know, this won't be a long bubble. You know, it won't be a long burst that the underlying people in this space aren't going to give up uh, and the underlying technology is real. And so, you know, lo and behold, three years later, we're back to what feels like another frenzy. I would say it's not the same as 2017 at all, just given the the breadth of the, the kind of players coming in and the amount of capital being poured into the system and building new architecture. And so I think this is early innings of the real revolution. 
uh, with 17 being kind of the, the first tempest in the teapot we'll look back on. Um, but that's it. That's a long-winded answer. Sorry about that. No, it's cool. I mean, that's why I got you on. Ari, I want to ask you the same question. Uh, what what got you passionate about crypto? Where where, where did the uh, where did the, the the brain click? I can tell you my moment in a second, but where did the brain click? And by the way, Novo, I owe you a lot for that moment because you came to the Salt Conference. We're talking about it. I said, okay, if Mike's doing, I have to do more research on this. But Ari, go ahead. Uh, so when the financial crisis hit, I was a novice trader at the Cisco International Group and very interested in macro, certainly not with uh, Mike's you know, professional experience. But um, I was reading a lot of uh, kind of the right people at the time, people, people like Noriel Rubini, I discovered in 2017 or sorry, 2007. And so it was clear that the Fed's money printing wouldn't cause inflation right away. We were in such a deflationary world. But I, I literally thought at the time. In five to 10 years, the trade of a lifetime is going to be betting on currency depreciation. And that kind of started me searching. And it, it took, uh, I, I'm not the fastest learner in the world. So even though I came across Bitcoin in 2011, it didn't click for me that Bitcoin could be that asset. It wasn't until 2014 that things kind of clicked. And I'm like, okay, um, insofar as people, whether or not we get inflation, whether or not we get extreme currency depreciation, fears of that will increase. And you can, I was an options trader you can think of it almost like an option where if volatility increases, the option's more valuable, whether or not we end up finishing in the money. So what we're seeing today is uh, exactly that. Whether or not we end up getting inflation, people are much more concerned about it today. The idea of us having you know high single-digit inflation in five, six years doesn't sound crazy anymore. So um, I would say the first kind of thing that had me looking, basically I was looking for Bitcoin. I was looking for what is the play when central banks around the world quadruple the money supply. I recognize that it might take five years for that to start trickling in, uh, given the velocity of money fell. Um, and Bitcoin is so clearly that asset, the, having a fixed supply, total radical transparency. Um, and it, well, one thing I'd say is that it, I don't think Bitcoin is competing as a technology. It really is, uh, as an analogy, it's closer to something like a Lloyds of London or a JP Morgan in the sense that no one thinks JP Morgan's going to go away because a new competitor says we can undercut them on fees by 10%. It's, it's competing on, on longevity, on adoption, on network effects. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. So, so Novo, the volatility of Bitcoin is a major concern for skeptics, okay? Why is Bitcoin so volatile when you think about all the convergence of buying right now and as it's making this transcending moment into the institutional class of investors? Why is this? Yeah. Close? So, listen, in, in 2017, I would have told you that 99% of buying was retail. Um, that number is coming down, but it didn't start coming down really till this year. Um, so, crypto was set up as you know, an alternative to institutions, right? It was set up to live outside of institutions and it played into this retail. But maybe more importantly, uh, the real big exchanges where there was great innovation, uh, all, all were in Asia. Uh, so you're talking about places like Binance and Bitfinex and BitMEX and Wobi. Uh, if you think about it, they played right into the Asian love of gambling and set up what I'll call Macau 2.0, right? These are really big exchanges that offer up to 100 times leverage. Think about that, Andy. I can't, I'm a rich guy. Uh, and when I go to, you know, Goldman Sachs or UBS and I want to 
you know, borrow money to buy equities. Maybe they give me two times leverage. And if I want to short something, I get no leverage. Uh, and that's with a giant balance sheet, right? We have all these rules about how much leverage we let people take in the equity market or even in the currency market. But in the crypto market, in all these exchanges, you get 100 to 1 leverage. I mean, that's, that's you know, near insanity. Uh, and so what you've, you have still is the remnants of this giant gambling class, mostly from Asia, but not all from Asia, this giant gambling class that has used this as an alternative to Macau. And we're seeing now this transition from retail into much deeper institutional hands that over time will mute volatility. And you can see it. If you, there's a great chart. Ari probably has it of how fast coins are coming off exchanges, right? They're going somewhere. They're going into, you know, cold storage at institutional custody places. They're going into, you know, lending businesses. They're, but they're moving off exchanges at a rapid path, uh, pace. Um, that tells me this shift is happening. Uh, right now, Ethereum's trading at 190 vol. I was trying to buy some options last night. I was like, at 190 vol, that, that's a lot. Uh, you know, Bitcoin's up 140, 150 vol. Um, that's unsustainable. Uh, you know, we are not going to, we are not going to be in this frenzy forever. Uh, there will be a blow off top at one point. Uh, you'll consolidate and things will calm down. People will lose some money. People will make some money. Um, you know, I've never seen markets literally trading in this kind of frenzy. I was going to buy some Ethereum last night. Um, and I got a phone call. I was pricing up some options. The ball was too expensive. I got a phone call. It was a 30 minute phone call. I came back and it was up 7%. I was like, oh, that's great. Uh, and it's up another seven since then. And so when you see price action like this, you know something special is happening, but you also have to be very careful. So, so Ari, you get, you get to look at most of this landscape. So explain to our viewers the supply-demand dynamics for Bitcoin today. Sure. Uh, one thought on volatility, you can't go from – being a dollar to $30,000 without volatility, almost tautologically. So when Bitcoin first, an unusual thing, we're used to, to assets becoming liquid and tradable at a billion dollar market cap or at least 100 million. Uh, Bitcoin started trading when it had a market cap of something like less than $5 million. And so you can't get from a $5 million market cap to a you know, $300 billion, half trillion dollar market cap without incredible volatility over 11 years. So. Um, yeah, as we're as we're kind of in price discovery mode, and that's really what it is. So I, one other angle to think about this, I was at the endowment world where we're constantly saying, man, it's so hard to get alpha. The world's best fund managers are really happy if they eke out a few percentage points of alpha on $10 billion a year. Uh, and we want to look at asset classes that are inefficient for various reasons. And so what we've seen, my basic thesis for crypto as a whole, being in a bull run, a secular bull run, is it's not a set of market participants that are repricing the asset. It's a growing set of market participants every couple of years, where as the regulatory uh, ambiguity fail, falls away, as the operational burdens fall away, as you get legitimate and, and name brand custodians like Fidelity, basically as pensions uh, and as, as new institution types, as pensions are able to buy the asset, suddenly the number of market participants increases exponentially. So we're in kind of this price discovery mode with ripples of new types of market participants gaining access to the asset. And it's not gonna be steady 1% every day, right? Because when you're in a bull run, speculators see the 1% daily gains, they start adding leverage, they, you know, it feels like free money, so then you get overextended, then you correct. Um, 
so the supply demand dynamic today, as, as Mike noted, uh, we've seen tons of Bitcoin moving off exchange. Um, Every data point we have on this is massive institutional buying. Uh, you have some quantitative data, things like inflows into grayscale, uh, which are inflows into the closed end vehicle. Um, that was, I believe, $3.8 billion in Q4, which was uh, close to everything that had ever flown into grayscale uh, prior to that. Um, anecdotally, a really interesting data point is we've been talking to a lot of billionaires in the financial world who are, um, it's, it's such an interesting shift in mindset they're now thinking defensively. They're thinking enough of their billionaire buddies have 10% of their net worth in Bitcoin that if they don't, they're thinking, man, if Bitcoin does another 20X, I'm not invited to the parties anymore. I'm not in that rich club, whatever, whatever, you know, wherever they are in the hierarchy. So now they're thinking, I need a passive allocation. I need to have 10% of my, of my net worth in this just to keep up, just in case. It's not about getting rich. It's now about staying rich. Uh, and that those are very strong hand buyers. These are people who are looking to buy more on dips. Um, these are people who are not, uh, they're not gonna sell with a change in trend. So the volatility is not going away. You, you, you can't have raging bull runs that take you 10X higher without volatility. Um, the volatility will gradually fall, uh, you know, for all of these, as, as this institutionalizes broader market participation, we are seeing volatility gradually fall, but it's gonna remain a volatile asset until it reaches maturity. And that's still probably pretty far away. So I want to ask you guys a few rapid fire. So these are sort of yes or no questions. Then I got to turn it over to the millennial. And I mean, it sucks for me, but it's part of his contract. His agent puts pressure on me where Darcy has to ask some of these questions. But let, let's go over a couple of rapid fire questions. Okay. Uh, and the short answers, Michael, where's Bitcoin on 12, 31, 21? 65,000. Ari, where's Bitcoin on 1231? At 85,000. 85,000. Okay. Like the price is right here. All right. Okay. So we like, keep going. Okay. Michael, yes or no? Okay. Uh, Goldman Sachs will have a Bitcoin fund uh, in the next two years. Yes or no? Yes. Ari? Yes. Okay. BlackRock. Will BlackRock have a Bitcoin fund? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gary Gensler, somebody we both know, Michael, maybe Ari knows him as well. Uh, we had the opportunity to work with him at Goldman, great guy. He's gonna be the SEC chairman. Uh, is he going to be pro-Bitcoin, medium Bitcoin? Is he gonna be the mama bear, baby bear, or papa bear of Bitcoin? Uh, you know, he is very knowledgeable on crypto. Uh, and so I think he's gonna be a real positive for the space. He's gonna to be tough on banks, right? I mean, he's progressive. He's kind of in my camp, not your camp, but, uh, uh, but he'll be very he'll be very fair and very. I, I might be in your camp now, Noah Grass. I mean, I know I, I you know this guy. We're, we're moving you over. Yeah, I mean, he destroyed one of the major political parties. I mean, the party of Lincoln. I mean, the guy took it out, put it in a paper shredder. But but this is about Bitcoin. We're going to keep it on Bitcoin, not my political theories. Go ahead, Ari. What what do you think of Gary? Uh, I, the concern, I think, for the industry is that Gary views most um, most tokens as likely securities. So you have Bitcoin, but then you have 300 other meaningful assets with real market cap, real value. And uh, the concern is that a lot of those had offerings that may have been unregistered security offerings. So Ethereum is a great example of this, where the SEC has, has said in uh, it, not as an official statement, but they've had representatives say at conferences that they view it as grandfathered in, that they don't intend to go after Ethereum, even though the initial offering may have been technically an unregistered security offering. So the concern with Gensler is that he may be much more aggressive on that front with other assets. Um, 
probably very pro Bitcoin. Uh, as, as Mike said, I mean, he's a prof- he was a professor of blockchain, I, I believe at MIT. Very, very knowledgeable, um, but aggressive on the regulatory side. So uh, what the whole crypto world is paying attention to is how, uh, you know, we just had the Mnuchin um, proposed rule out of the Treasury Department. Governments are not going to ignore crypto. Uh, that's always been true. You know, Satoshi Nakamoto wrote about this, about how we kind of want to grow quietly until we're ready to um, have kind of government attention. So cryptocurrency is now at a, a stage where every government around the world is developing policies. Every regulator is thinking about how this falls under their purview. The hope is that it's relatively light, sensible regulation. Gensler um, may be on the aggressive side. Okay, Michael, the date that a crypto, let's say Bitcoin, the date that a Bitcoin ETF is approved? Within 12 months. Okay, all right. Uh, I don't know, but I'm optimistic. I, I hope Mike's right. Okay. All right. Uh, I'll say yes if I have to give it uh, Andy, let me, let me elaborate oh, a little bit. So, right. you know, the SEC's job is to protect the little guy, right? That's the SEC's job, protect the retail investor. And they've allowed the Grayscale Trust, which is an amazing piece of business for Barry Silbert and, and his team, uh, to grow to $25, 30000000000 billion, where investors are paying high fees, um, they're being arbitraged every day by hedge funds, right? Hedge funds put in Bitcoin, retail investors buy it at a 20, 25% premium, 18% premium, it changes day to day. And so you've got retail paying high fees and buying at bad prices, but that was okay. The SEC let that go, but they would have let an ETF go. I mean, they were just asked backwards on this whole thing. You know, Chairman Clayton didn't really get it. And I think Gary Gensler is far, far more attuned to you know, what his role is and understanding the, the intricacies of crypto. Uh, and so we're going to have an ETF. Uh, it's going to make the grayscale premium go from where it is to, to probably negative. Uh, you know, it's a giant closed end fund. I wish I owned that closed end fund. You know, it's, it's going to be there for a long, long time. Um, but most closed end funds trade at a discount to NAV. And I think in time, grayscale will too. Uh, it will once there, there's an ETF. And so I think that will be the big transition this year. Okay. Um, I got to tell you something, Ari, you got like a really cool camera going. It's like you're coming in and you're coming out. I feel like Scorsese's de- uh, directing the salt talk, you know, but at any moment, just don't go into like a whole, you know, Scarface mode or something like that. God forbid. Okay. Go ahead, Darcy. I know you're dying to ask questions. We got the on that's been long Bitcoin since before it was invented. Go ahead. Uh, Michael, I want to start with you. You mentioned earlier that the 2017 rally was driven a lot by retail investors. You said, I think 99% you felt was retail speculation. And now that uh, percentage is shifting towards institutions. In your view, what is that percentage today? And what type of interest are you fielding from institutions, whether it be pension endowments, large investment firms, insurance companies? What type of interest are you fielding in Bitcoin today? I think if you add high net worth into that bucket, right, which are many institutions themselves yep. these days, that was, listen, that's all our business because we were set up as an institutional business. I would tell you, you know, I, Galaxy's mantra was we're going to be the bridge between crypto and institutions. And man, it was kind of lonely for a couple of years, right? Our business wasn't great until really it all shifted with COVID. And post-COVID, we've had these two tailwinds, right? We've had this macro story because of the money printing. That is a beautiful tailwind for Bitcoin, uh, the, 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 the story that Ari was telling eloquently earlier. You've also had the digitalization of everything, right? That 
you know, from us doing this on Zoom to the hyper acceleration of that. And that's really played into the Ethereum community. It's played into stable coins, right? All of us saying, shit, I wish they could have done the, the, the COVID checks, you know, directly as opposed to, you know, getting them in the mail. We should all have wallets. We should, you know, the government should be able to, you know, direct payments through, through a, a payment system that's wallet based. Um, and so we're going to have central bank issued digital currencies. Uh, they're coming in every single major country. Uh, how they, how they, you know, what form they take, it'll be interesting, but they're coming in every major country. And so that whole process, I think, uh, has shifted the, the institutional mindset. So first it was all Bitcoin. Next, why I think Ethereum is going to double. And I literally didn't think this till yesterday. I was walking. I was like, shit, all the smart hedge funds are getting, what's next? We can now look at Ethereum. And then the same thing with the other institutions. Uh, and so, and then it's going to be decentralized finance, which really is the cool stuff. And so we're in this process now of more and more smart people with real capital looking, understanding it. Like Ari and I aren't crazy, but we're not that much smarter than anybody else. We just got in early. And the same conclusions we make most likely are going to be made by other people looking at it, right? I always thought in mercantile things, 10 smart guys looking at a set of problems usually come up with the same answers. Uh, and so as we get more and more eyeballs on these solutions for things that don't work, you're going to have more people getting interested in investing. Right. So just to build on that point from Michael, in terms of the interest you're seeing in the crypto world, is it focused on Bitcoin? Is it now include Ethereum, obviously, which has rallied a lot uh, in the even in the last week or so? Um, or do you think people are going to continue to go further down the risk curve and look at altcoins and other uh, sort of venture opportunities in the digital asset space? Uh, they're definitely going to move along the curve. So what, what we've seen, so most of the money coming into the ecosystem comes into Bitcoin first, and that's always been true. I think we're in the sixth inning of a fairly classic bull cycle. And for the rest of this bull cycle, my prediction is all coins in general outperform Bitcoin. And it's very similar across any asset class where in after you've had major wealth creation, people move along the risk curve, right? They, they want to find that next 10x. I mean, Bitcoin is up more than 10x since March of last year right? Nine months up more than 10x. People see a price tag of $36,000, $37,000 and they say, well, it's going to be hard to get another 10x out of that. And so they look at something like Ethereum that isn't that just uh, in the last 24 hours actually made new all-time highs. And they say, well, okay, that's a much smaller asset, a few billion dollars going into that and the thing's going to triple. And then they keep moving down the risk curve. So um, mo basically new money first goes to Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin's the safest, the most stable, the easiest to understand. And then as people get into the ecosystem, they learn a little more, they get more comfortable, they look out along the risk curve. Uh, and they look also for where they can add active alpha, at, you know, alpha through asset selection, alpha through um, just having other assets to market time. Um, so, and, and I'm in a slightly different seat uh, than Mike in that we're active managers. And so we're not pitching gen passive allocation. We're not, we're not grayscale. We're not trying to get people to just put money into Bitcoin. Um, so the people we're talking to naturally are interested in kind of the full spectrum of opportunities. Yeah. And so and let me, let me clarify. I would say 85% of the new institutional money, 90% of the new institutional money that comes into the space this year is going to come into Bitcoin. So be really clear about that. Bitcoin's got a $700 billion market cap. And so that'll move the market. I actually think Bitcoin, like, like I said, could, you know, close to double from here. It would have been double on the year for when we started the year. Um, that's a lot of market cap to move, right? It's adding another $700 billion um, or more. It doesn't take nearly as much money to move Luna coin or 
you know, a sushi swap or YFI or, or even Ethereum. And so those coins, uh, I think, you know, potentially have more volatility, more upside, also more downside, right? Bitcoin's kind of been de-risked in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's our thesis at Skybridge. And, you know, Bitcoin is our gateway drug. And for now, it's our exclusive focus. But it's something that, like you said, uh, big institutions are going to look at the bellwether first. I just want to, Ari, you can elaborate on drug. I mean, you got to say, great. You're going to get Novogratz all excited when you say that. I mean, I mean, gateway drug. (laughs) That's the best metaphor you can come up with. Keep, Keep, keep going. I'm, I'm drinking water out of a side yeah, cup. I, no, I know that's vodka hidden in an aquaponic land. Don't don't start. Um, Ari, I want to talk about sort of uh, the thesis behind why Bitcoin has been so strong. So there's this macro argument that people are buying into Bitcoin because of money printing and inflation and things like that. But then there's also purely a supply demand dynamic that exists where there's so much more buying of Bitcoin taking place. And it's sort of a chicken and egg type situation. What do you think is the real biggest driver behind this massive rally that we've seen over the last several months? Uh, I, I would call it billionaire FOMO. Um, so the buyers uh, in Q4 in particular, something you could see, it was actually, it's an amazing pattern. If you bought Bitcoin during US business hours and you sold it during Asia hours, you actually doubled Bitcoin's performance, even though it did like a 3X in the quarter. Um, you could see it in the market. It's TWAP. It was it was a time weighted average price uh, kind of scaling in orders, largely on Coinbase and other U.S. exchanges. So these were U.S. institutions and U.S. billionaires establishing large positions um, through OTC desks. And we we talked to some of these people. We know it anecdotally. Uh, you see sometimes public reports from, for example, Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy. Um, you know that. So that's what it's been. That was what was driving it. And the psychology was very much. Uh, these ripples of word of mouth adoption, right? So one billionaire is talking to four of his financial buddies, uh, people like Novogratz, you know, and and it's, yeah, I've now got 10, 20% of my net worth in it. And I'm super convinced. I think it's going to double this year. It's the best risk adjusted place to have your money. Um, and as with all marketing, it, it's a number of touches, right? Once you hear that from three of your smartest billionaire friends who you respect, maybe you get converted. So we've been seeing that. Uh, and then what's happened just very recently is finally Asia's getting in the game. So that pattern of sell-offs during Asia hours uh, finally stopped about a week ago. There's now a small kimchi premium, which is uh, Bitcoin is trading at a premium in South Korea. So, and, and this has been the pattern in every uh, crypto bull cycle, by the way. It's basically uh, usually starts off as U.S. Um, kind of more savvy money, smarter money. And then you get U.S. retail and Asia kind of adding fuel to the, mo- you know, adding, chasing the momentum. Um, so we're just now getting into that stage of more retail and Asia driving the rally. Well, let, right. let me let me let me jump in and chime in here for a second because I think already hit on something that's important, but maybe didn't hit on it as hard as I want to. You know, when you think about what's unique about Bitcoin, it's the first global speculative asset. Really, period. Right? We never had an asset as distributed as as, as Bitcoin. Bitcoin's owned by over 120 million people now. And so in every village, there's a Bitcoiner trying to convince their friends that this is the cool thing. And so, right, if you're if you're running, you know, Apple or Tesla, you've got you've got usually one guy out there as a salesman, right, who's selling this company and then, you know, who's telling the story of this company. Uh, in Bitcoin, you know, I'm one of 
15 people that seem to show up on CNBC, you know, weekly telling the Bitcoin story. There's podcasts galore, but there's people in every village in the damn world who are Bitcoiners who feel like it's their job to, to proselytize about why. And so we have never had a, a, a asset that has a retail base in Iran, a retail base in India, a retail base in Africa, a retail base in Korea, uh, passionate retail bases, right? All over the world. And so what we're seeing is this viral effect, right? This networking effect uh, that's accelerating. Ari told you about a really important network, right? The good old billionaire voice club. Uh, I was on an early call uh, that a friend of mine set up and I looked around and I was like, Jesus, there's like 30 of the richest guys I've ever seen on this call. And from that call, a lot of them end up getting involved in the, in the crypto space. Uh, some with us, many not with us. Um, and so you have these mini ecosystems, but they're developing everywhere. And that's the power of this, this you know, community, you know, an asset. It's the, the power of decentralization, right? There's not a CEO of Bitcoin. I like to think I am sometimes, but I am absolutely not the CEO of Bitcoin, right? And I used to call myself the Forrest Gump of Bitcoin. Um, there isn't a CEO, right? And there are different people. I mean, Michael Saylor has had an amazing effect this year. He's popped up. It's his moment. Uh, there's different people at different times that are having influence in different communities, right? Michael is doing a, I think it's next week, we're participating, a conference for literally like 2,000 CFOs and CEOs of companies to try to convince them to put some of their corporate cash in Bitcoin. Now, he's not going to convince the majority of them, but he's going to convince some of them. And right. so here's another guy building community. And so that's happening everywhere in this asset, which is pretty cool. Are there a lot of still, you know, to use a, a bad metaphor again, closeted Bitcoin bulls that haven't come out yet? You have people like Paul Tudor Jones and Stan Druckenmiller and Bill Miller. Yes. Yeah, uh, I would so tell you a lot less, of names that would people would say, wow, when they realize how invested people are in Bitcoin. Less than less than 10 percent of the people that would be notable names uh, who have bought it, have bought it publicly, which doesn't make a lot of sense. They should all be public because right. you know, it will help drive adoption. But a lot of people, you know, a lot of people revere their privacy. Uh, right. I, have, I don't happen to be one of those people, uh, but lots of people. And even in the insurance company, right, there's one insurance company that's come out and said they bought Bitcoin. But I know of three insurance companies that have. And so, listen, one person is a crazy man, right? He might wear dragon, dragon sweatshirts and a funny hat. Uh, but by the time you have three or four, it's a movement. And so we already have a movement in the insurance business, uh, but we just don't know it yet. Right. Ari, I'm going to play devil's advocate now for, for a couple questions here uh, on our video segment. But there's an accusation out there, and, and I think it's one of the more uh, common and credible accusations, at least at one point it was, that people have dug into the, the reality of it, and there's some skepticism around the accusation, but that Bitcoin is manipulated using Tether and using other stable coins, uh, and, and really this is a bunch of Bitcoin whales that are trading with each other and helping to manipulate the price higher. What do you say to people who argue that the price of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is manipulated? And I'll let you answer it too, Michael. Yeah, so two years ago, most Bitcoin volume was on offshore unregulated exchanges that did play a lot of games that uh, report the reported volumes were probably 10x the real volumes. What's happened recently is um, a couple of idiosyncratic things. So the U.S., um, uh, which department was it? Uh, the BitMEX, which was one of the largest exchanges, the principals were indicted by the U.S. government. Um, 
And that caused a lot of volume to flow away from BitMEX. Uh, also, BitMEX uh, in Black Thursday when Bitcoin crashed, uh, they kind of mishandled it. So a lot of money fl uh, flew to regulated US-based, very reputable exchanges. CME futures uh, are now, uh, Mike, do you, what, what's the daily volume on that now? Do you know on CME yeah, futures? Yeah, you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a ton. Uh, I want to say $4 billion a day on CME futures now, massive. And um, OKX had some principles arrested in China, and that led similarly to a lot of volume flowing to places like Coinbase. So we have price discovery happening to the many billions of dollars a day in Bitcoin on regulated exchanges that are, you know, CME futures. I think we trust, you know, that those are not um, manipulated any differently than any other CME future, for example. Um, as for the stablecoin, as for Tether, so Tether is a pool right now of about $26 billion. It's relatively opaque. Uh, and it's, it's, it, it historically was the on-ramp for Asia to buy Bitcoin. Uh, a lot of these exchanges to avoid really, basically if you're an exchange that touches fiat, you have massive regulatory hurdles. If you don't touch fiat, you fall under a much lighter regulatory regime. So a lot of the highest volume exchanges chose not to touch fiat. Well, how do you buy Bitcoin on those exchanges then? You need a stable coin. So Tether was the original stable coin. Um, that was how a lot the highest volume exchanges, if you wanted to get money on, you would first buy Tether. Um, Tether's opaque because basically the banks that serve Tether don't really want to be public. Um, a couple, one is Deltek, but there's a few that don't because they're afraid it would just put them in regulatory crosshairs, even if they're not doing anything illegal. So for example, uh, I had a bank account shut down because I transferred money from that bank to Coinbase. Totally illegal transaction. Coinbase is a regulated U.S. entity. The bank shut down my account because they just don't want to deal with compliance around crypto, right? So it's easy to see why a lot of banks would not be public that they're holding $5 billion of Tether's money. So I think it is a legitimate concern in the sense that I can't prove that nothing funny is going on, right? It's too opaque. With that said, um, all the criticisms that have been circulated are very weak. Uh, most of it is very easy to explain. For example, people point out that Tether transactions happen in round numbers. They batch, they, like many entities, they just batch transactions daily. Um, people have pointed out correlation between Tether printing and Bitcoin rising. Well, of course, it's the on-ramp, right? People give $100 million to Tether, they convert the Tether, they send the Tether to exchange and they buy Bitcoin. So of course you would expect there to be a high correlation, right? Tether printing is generally bullish because it's an on-ramp that people use to buy Bitcoin. So um, my best guess at the moment is that Tether is legitimate. It's I don't think it's manipulating anything. With that said, it is a systemic risk. Michael, do you have any reaction to that or, or what are other risks in your mind that are real and then you know, maybe don't I think Ari, I think Ari nailed it, and and you know, it would be nice if there was an audit on Tether. There, there really isn't. We looked at it to be fair years ago. Uh, they had a partner who wanted to get rid of it at one point because of you know it was kind of dragging down Bitfinex. Bitfinex was a, a very profitable exchange for them, and uh, the thought was sell it to someone in the U.S. who could then you know bring the regulators in and kind of make sure it was legit and clean. Uh, I was very excited about it. I thought it was a cool business. I wish I, I wish I'd gotten into the stablecoin business. Um, I'm je I'm jealous. Um, of course, he he ended up kind of being pushed out of their ownership group, and they they kept it. Um, listen, the, the guys that own Bitfinex, the guys that own Tether, are really crafty, uh, aggressive cowboy businessmen who have you know lived off li lived outside the grid in some ways, and so that doesn't give you great confidence. That said, they have so much to lose by screwing this thing up, um, that you hope that, you know, and then listen, there, there's been kind of 
quasi audits done. I, I remember a guy who was, was an ex, you know, head of the FBI uh, came in and they hired him to kind of do a quasi audit. Uh, and he believed that they had the right backing. But, you know, right now, in some ways, it doesn't matter till it matters. People see Tether as a legitimate, you know, store of value. Uh, and, you know, what would be really fascinating is if you could create something that then drifts away from being backed, that people just trust anyway, then all of a sudden you've got seniorage, then you've made a money printing machine. I mean, that's the fear, right? right. That Because that, that, no, one, no one believes that's the case right now. Um, if they're doing that, man, they're, man, they're good. Um, it is the one system systemic risk in the system. If t- if there was something that blew up, like it's only twenty billion, twenty five billion dollars, but right now it still provides a lot of the grease for how all these exchanges work. And so it would be a real real win for places like Coinbase and Kraken and and you know the the more established the regulated places or you know U.S. places. Uh, it would hit Bitcoin price temporarily, uh, but things would then I think just regroup. Right. Michael, what, what are you worried about? You know, you talked about Tether being one of the systemic risks with Bitcoin and crypto. What other risks are you worried about uh, related to that asset class? Listen, whenever you're trading at 170 vol, I look at price Ethereum options, there were 190 vol offered last night. Um, whenever things are moving this fast, uh, people make mistakes, mistakes get really costly. Um, there's a lot of leverage in this grayscale arbitrage, right, where people borrow coins, put them at grayscale, wait six months, and then sell them to the retail uh, buyer. There's a tremendous amount of leverage in that space. And so if if there was an ETF announced tomorrow, right? ETF announced tomorrow, which is not going to happen. But if it was theoretically, that premium collapses, there there are hedge funds and other businesses that would be shit out of luck. Um, And so again, that's bad for the overall system when somebody notable blows up. You know, it, it always scares people. Like, what else could happen? Um, right. Some of that's going to happen because we're trading at 190 volt. Like, that's just the way the world works. Um, and so I would, you know, you keep your fingers close to, the, to, the, to the, the keyboard and you keep your radar on. Uh, we are in a hyper bull market right now. And the, the, it's always hard, hard, hard to ride the bull. Yep. How about you, Ari? What are you concerned about? Um, so I, I, I have a risk manager background, so I, um, I always have a, a long, long list of concerns. I'd say at the moment though, I, I, you know, I think Mike and I are on the same page of our analysis of you have money flowing in that is strong hands that are buying for the long term that are looking at dips as opportunities. So I'm not, I, I agree. I think if Tether were to collapse tomorrow, um, basically in any hyper volatile bull runs, you get big pullbacks, you get 30% pullbacks on the way. And those are always terrifying. They, those always happen because of a headline. And the headline's usually real, right? It's usually something actually happens that's scary. You fall 30% and then everyone remembers, wait, there is. we, we think this thing's higher in two years. So why wouldn't we be buying this dip, right? So um, I, I would say, you know, Tether's up there. Uh, you have a lot of kind of smaller scale risks. Um, in DeFi, for example, uh, there's constant hacks and exploits of the smart contracts. and if you're in DeFi, if you own assets, uh, that could be systemically dangerous to Ethereum if you had a much larger scale, if you had a billion dollars taken out of DeFi, for example. Um, other than that, uh, I don't think there's anything imminent on the regulatory front, but um, I am a little bit concerned that now we have Democrats controlling Congress. Uh, we have had seen some legislation that's pretty adverse coming from the AOC crowd. Um, 
So far, it's fringe. It doesn't look like it has congressional support. But, you know, as this bull market plays out under a Democratic administration, Democratic Congress, uh, I think we're likely to face some onerous regulation that may, may prove challenging, may create some of those dips that are then the good trading opportunities for people like Mike and I. Um, so I, I don't really have existential concerns currently. Um, I'll say this, though. Every time crypto has gone up 10x, it becomes much scarier to a new level of sovereign entity. So, you know, 2013, it was, well, Bitcoin's being used on the Silk Road, the FBI cares about it being used to buy drugs. Then 2017, it was, wow, now ICOs are bigger than seed stage financing and traditional finance. And so now the SEC cares. Well, this bull market, we're getting to a scale that central banks care, that the Treasury Department's care. Uh, and I think at least in some parts of the world, we will see more meaningful pushback. Uh, and it's hard to predict how that will play out. And I, I think that's probably at least six months away. It's probably another 100% rally in Bitcoin first. But at some point, that'll be a risk. I'm going to ask one, one, let me, one. Let me ask one thing. What, one thing that's driven me crazy is, and I'm a progr- I would call myself a progressive or certainly center left, um, is that the progressive, you know, you have this legislation that Rashid Taleb put out. Uh, like Bitcoin and crypto at its core, the reason I got in it is that it is it's progressive. Um, right. right. You know, the banking system has not been progressive. Right. The banking system charges huge fees to people with no money and smaller fees and, and, and gives great access to people with money. Right. I mean, the, the whole the way the whole IPO game is played is all the richer you are, the more you make free on the IPO game. And so in some ways, that group of politicians have it backwards. Uh, I've made it my mission this year at one point to sit down with AOC and 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 some of the other, you know, Dems, and try to help them understand that, like we're on their side. Uh, I got into this, you know, basically for that reason, and so it's 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 some way bizarre. Now, listen, part of it is it would help if there was more diversity in crypto, uh, both gender diversity and and racial diversity. Uh, you know, it's and and I'm kind of going to try to do my own my own side of it there. Um, you know, crypto felt like it's a bros club. And if, you know, I looked at my Twitter, it was 85% male. Uh, and that, you know, needs to change the setting for the, for, for, to kind of win over some of the progressives, but also just it needs to change because if you really want to rebuild things in a more equitable way, you can't just have, you know, white males as the only guys participating, um, right. at least within the U.S. context. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. You're starting to see some athletes uh, become aware of crypto. And there's a couple, uh, Russell Okung, who's a left tackle for the Carolina Panthers, getting paid in Bitcoin. Spencer Dinwiddie is trying to tokenize himself. He's a guard for the Brooklyn Nets. So it is exciting to see a broader coalition of people yep. uh, getting into the space. Uh, I want to talk, the final question I want to ask you both about is central bank digital currency. So we had Marty Chavez uh, from former Goldman CTO and, and chief information officer on here talking very expansively about the potential benefits of central bank digital currencies. Could you explain that to our audience who's less familiar? Mike, I'll go with you first. And what does that mean if we do get central bank digital currencies? What does it mean for Bitcoin, which is the truly distributed, uh, you know, yeah. global, globalist digital currency? Well, so a central bank ba- digital currency basically is just a digital rendition of the dollar um, and or the euro or what's coming first is the Chinese renminbi. How those systems are set up can vary immensely, right? So if you're in China, it's going to be completely centralized. The Chinese are going to control the blockchain, which means they're going to control and understand every bit of data. Uh, and so it helps them with understanding the macro, you know, real-time data in their country. But it also is an unbelievable invasion of privacy, uh, right? 
right. you know, whatever, every penny is spent. Uh, and so if you want to control your population, a good way to control them is understanding where their money goes. And so there are other systems, right? What's unique about blockchain is it's distributed. No one owns the database, but everyone shares it. And, and so a lot of the ones that in the West are being built on the Ethereum blockchain, right? Which is, which is decentralized. Uh, and so you can have, a, in essence, in a perfect world, just a much more efficient payment system without giving up all your privacy. Right. Um, right now, for me to send you money, I have Venmo. I can Venmo you money up to 1500 bucks. I think is the limit. So that's kind of like a crypto, but it's a centralized, you know, closed system. I can't send Venmo overseas. I can't send you $100,000 on Venmo or $10,000 on Venmo. Uh, and so Venmo will, re will be replaced uh, most likely by a, a system. And it might be on the Facebook system sending their, their version of a, a dollar stable coin back and forth to people. But it's crazy that I can send you a photo of me, you know, dressed in a, in a, in a wig with, with high heels on and I can set it on one of 19 different apps, uh, right? Uh, with privacy, with anything I want, but I can't send you $10 if you're living in Europe. And so that's all going to change. All right. Can you talk about your views on the DeFi movement and, and where that's going? Yeah. So uh, central bank digital currencies are going to conquer the world by storm because uh, they're attracted to basically everyone and everything. The IRS loves it because you get perfect tax compliance. Treasury Department loves it because you get real time economic information. Uh, FBI loves it. You know, obvious reasons. Um, and I think it very clearly dramatically increases demand for decentralized alternatives, because if I tell you that everything you do with fiat is now going to be completely transparent to your government, as, as well as we now know foreign governments, right? We know that uh, the solar winds hack, basically anything you give the US government, you have to assume is public, is gonna be on the dark net for anyone to buy. So, you know, if I tell you that all of your uh, financial transactions that you do with fiat are going to be completely transparent to basically anyone who wants it, isn't your next step to say, oh man, what else can I do? What's the alternative to that? So we're going to see central bank digital currencies rolled out worldwide, and uh, I think it's going to largely replace the current system. And simultaneously, we're going to see a huge growth in demand for decentralized alternatives. I think that'll be both Bitcoin, possibly privacy coins, coins that are optimized around um, maintaining privacy, as well as on the uh, more complex financial transaction side. That's where DeFi comes in. So. Um, just like people want financial privacy on their monetary moves, they also want that on their stock trades. They also want that on the real estate transactions. And DeFi uh, is more efficient, removes a lot of middlemen. As Mike said, it's much more egalitarian. You don't have the gatekeepers. Uh, you don't have the you know um, punitive fees that get paid. That you know the, the the kind of crazy bank overdraft games banks play with their low income customers. All of that gets removed. You have total transparency uh, and you have privacy. So. It's, it's the, 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 the rollout of central bank digital currencies is, I think, the catalyst that makes cryptocurrency mainstream as currency. Yep. Right. I agree with Ari. Yeah. And China sort of had that aha moment where they went from thinking about banning cryptocurrencies to thinking, wow, this could actually be a really powerful tool for us to achieve our goals, uh, as you mentioned, Mike, in authoritarian ways. This is where the big debate has to happen, right? Because... Crypto in a centralized fashion is, is, a, is a dystopian nightmare, right? Think about it. Like if you have everyone's privacy, everyone's expending data, which China already has, right? Everything that's spent on, you know, we, you know Alipay or, or uh, Waymo uh, goes to a central clearinghouse. 
So, you know, I know you're pregnant before you know you're pregnant by what you're shopping for. I know you're gay. I know you're whatever I want to know. I can know by your shopping patterns. Right. Uh, if I decide I don't like gay people like the president of Brazil, uh, who's been very vocal about his, you know, anti-gay stance in a, in a, in a centralized digital cryptocurrency, you can hit a button and just make the money go away, right? It's programmable money. And so it's really dangerous line on where that privacy, where that data gets held, who holds it, how long it lasts. So literally the data collected from the central bank digital currencies, that's really where the smart regulation and thought process has to come on how these things get set up, or we're headed to a, a world that I don't want to be part of. That, that's so key. I want to emphasize it, that it's not just transparency, but it's control. So China with a, so currently, if, if basically any government wants to financially censor citizens, they kind of have to do it manually. It's kind of like, let's create a list. Let's give that list to different banks, different entities. But imagine if an algorithm could say, you posted something unpatriotic to social media. All of your assets are frozen and it's done algorithmically and you have no recourse. And it was effortless for some bureaucrat in China to say 10 million people, all of their assets are frozen. That's the world we're headed to in at least many parts of the world. And uh, I think very clear how that's gonna increase demand for alternatives. Right, and, and I think it's one reason why Bitcoin continues to be the big winner. Bitcoin and other you know, truly distributed global digital currencies continue to be the big winner in this movement. Thank you so much, uh, Michael Novogratz from Galaxy Digital and Ari Paul from Block Tower, two of the leading players in the space. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt Talks. We look to have you uh, both with us at future Salt conferences in person, which I know uh, Mike has been to many times and a great contributor uh, to Salt. And we hope to have you, Ari, as well. Ari, right, good to see you. Be well. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Mike. And thank you to everybody who tuned in to today's Salt Talk, the latest in our series on digital assets and cryptocurrency. We look forward to having uh, very regular conversations about these topics, uh, which I think are on the vanguard of the type of innovation that we like to cover here on Salt Talks. But uh, just a reminder, if you missed any of this talk or you want to watch any of our previous talks with people like Michael Saylor, who was referenced earlier uh, in this Salt Talk, you can go to salt.org backslash talks backslash archive and view our entire archive of previous episodes of Salt Talks. You can sign up for all of our future webinars at salt.org backslash talks. Please spread the word about Salt Talks. We love growing our community and we've gotten a, a great chance to do it digitally. Uh, during the pandemic, we had to cancel our conferences, but these Salt Talks have allowed us to uh, build a global audience. We've been very excited about that. So please spread the word and please follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And on, on behalf of the entire SALT team, uh, this is John Darcy signing off for today from SALT Talks. We'll see you back here again tomorrow. Thank <laughs> you.